as you turn there, I want to uh, read to you from Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. A little bit later in that same chapter of Philippians 2, Paul writes this of Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So my question is to you, how many people do you know who are genuinely concerned for your welfare? Think about that for a moment. And would anyone say of you that you are genuinely concerned for their welfare? Many who are rejecting the gospel today will say that it is due to their having been hurt by the selfishness of Christians. And I read what I read in Philippians, because even in Paul's day, true selflessness is rare, even within the church. The one person in all of history who has devoted himself entirely to your welfare, is Jesus Christ. There is no one like Jesus. Now we come to Genesis 38, and we are somewhat surprised that the chapter 38 does not follow Joseph down to Egypt. Instead, we are treated to a story of Judah and Tamar. And this story is an incredible story of faith. And we are somewhat surprised to see that this faith is living in a Canaanite woman named Tamar. Again, I'm going to read a passage and then section and kind of move on through this passage. We're going to begin in uh, chapter verse 1 and go through verse 5. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Now, Shua is the name of this lady's dad. He took her and went into her And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name name Shelah. 
Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. Now chapter 38 begins with Judah traveling down the road to apostasy. Judah is acting very much like Esau acted, who was before him a covenant breaker. He departs from his brothers. And he does this because he is more concerned for his self-interest than he is for following God or seeking the welfare of his brothers. Let that sink in. You see, we learned last week that God's plan is to train the brothers to love one another. And instead, Judah is departing from them. Add to this that Judah also takes a Canaanite wife, and our hearts begin to churn. Judah, are you going to go the route of destruction? He is walking away from the promises of Abraham. You and I as readers should be afraid for Judah. His eternal soul is on the line. But we should also be afraid that the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob seem to be failing. Joseph has been sold into slavery. Judah is on his way to become a covenant breaker. The number of God's fullness, 12, is down by 2 from 12 to 10. Is it true that the promises of blessing are on the verge of collapsing? We're not told of the name of Judah's wife, but she gives Judah three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And when Judah's firstborn is old enough for marriage, he finds for him a wife. That's in verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now the fact that we don't know Judah's wife, but we do know the name of Judah's son's wife, is very purposeful. Tamar is the heroine of the story. She is the one who will be included in the genealogy of Christ. Now at this point, we don't know much about Tamar. We only know that she's a Canaanite. And so our expectations of her are really low. Verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now we're not told of, of Ur's particular sin or sins, just that he was wicked and God crushes him. Now, just so you guys catch this, It's possible that Ur was more wicked than others in the story, but we know from the whole of Scripture that God doesn't grade on a curve. And so Judah's actions, we're going to find out, are pretty wicked. And Ur's death is not a reminder that God judges the worst of the worst of the worst, the Hitlers of the world. It is a judgment upon all wickedness that God could bring. You see, in this story, you will see that God could just have, just as easily have taken out Judah. In fact, we will begin to see through this that it is God's mercy alone that will alter Judah's destiny. Verse 8, then Judah says to Anon, 
Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And this is where in the story you go, wait, what? What am I supposed to do? What's going on here? Did he just say what I thought he said? Judah tells his son to perform the duty of a brother-in-law? So if you're confused by that, join the crowd. The Latin word for husband's brother is levir. And so this whole passage and other passages is sometimes called levirate law. It has nothing to do with Leviticus law. So it's just levirate law. It is, it is mentioned at several places in the Bible. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy 25. I'm going to read that in a minute. It's mentioned in, in Ruth chapter 4. It's even mentioned when the Sadducees try to trick Jesus in the New Testament. The same law is, is referred to at several points. But every time you read these different places, there's, it's like the law gets tweaked a little bit. It's like, what's going on here? It's very difficult to understand. And I'm not going to actually go into all those details and the little differences and nuances. I think I have been able to ascertain what is the heart of this law. Leviret law states that it is the duty of a living brother to provide a son for his deceased brother so that the inheritance of the dead brother will not be lost. Now I realize none of that really makes sense to us today. But the dead father lives on through his son. And if he doesn't have a son, then he's lost his place in his inheritance. Without an heir to inherit the land, the name of the father would be lost. And his stake in the inheritance would also be lost. Now we don't understand this regularly in our day because we don't see our inheritance as tied to a specific land here and now. We see our inheritance as the new heavens, new earth. We don't, we don't see it as joined together. Sometimes it's, it's like a shadow of this is, is given to uh, parents want their children to inherit their estate. You know, we kind of see that connection there. No kids, we lose the estate, right? That kind of feeling. It's also hard for us to understand as Christians because we see our internal inheritance as connected to Jesus Christ, not to our dad. And we'll get back to Jesus in a moment. But I'm just asking you to just step into the story for a moment Understand what is going on. If you don't have a son, you lose your inheritance. Now I want you to understand then the thoughts and motives that are going on in the characters. Judah. He is walking away from God's covenant promises. He doesn't care about knowing the God of the covenant. He's not looking forward to an eternal heavenly home. But he does care about the here and now. And Jacob, his dad, has a lot of material wealth, and he wants a piece of that. 
Judah knows that he stands to receive a healthy share of his father's estate. And he wants to have an heir through whom his name can live on. It's important to see that Leviric law was not something that was just among Israel. Other nations had a similar laws. And it's probably Tamar is actually thinking about her, her country's Leviric laws even more so than any biblical laws because they hadn't even been written yet. Deuteronomy, Ruth, none of that's all down the road. So hear this. While Judah has only his father's material estate in mind, Tamar is thinking of much more. This will become clear as we go through. Judah initially has no doubt about his responsibility after the death of Ur. It is his duty as a father to ensure that his second son will carry out his duty to give Tamar a son who will become the heir of her first husband, Ur. Now, I know this seems to contradict everything we think about sexual morals. Our natural reaction is to go, ooh, you know. uh, But as much as I feel that reaction with you, I want you to make an effort to suppress those feelings and focus on the gospel lessons. It is critical that you understand that Judah is telling Onan to act unselfishly towards Ur. That's the key of this whole thing. Now, what's so unselfish about this? Well, Ur's the firstborn. He's entitled to the greater inheritance. If he had had a son, that greater inheritance would go to his son. But since he doesn't have a son, the entirety of the inheritance that he would have received would go to the next son, which is Onan. Now, Onan stands to gain a pretty sum. I don't know why God took out her, but working out good for me. It's important for you to understand that that Judah is not asking Onan to take care of Tamar. You know, just take care of her. You know, watch out for her. He's telling Onan to give Tamar a son that will bear the name of Ur. In other words, he's telling Onan to give back his inheritance to Ur, and it's going to come at a pretty cost to him. So Judah is asking Onan to be unselfish. That's That's the heart of it. Don't think about yourself, Onan. Think about Ur. And Onan wants nothing to do with unselfishness. Verses 9 and 10. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. It's not entirely clear what would have happened if Onan had just said, sorry, Dad, I don't want to do that. Uh, In the book of Ruth, it's kind of a shameful thing to do that, but you had an option to do that. Um, But he wants to give the impression that he's acting unselfishly 
He goes into Tamar, takes her, has sexual relations with her, but will not give her a son. This is using and abusing Tamar. Instead of being a, a, a man of unselfishness and, and wonderful uh, love towards his brother, all he thinks about is himself and he uses his brother's wife. God takes him out. So what we see so far in the story is that this story presents to us the exact opposite of the gospel. We read in, in Philippians, we read in Hebrews that Jesus is our brother who has given up everything to love us, to care more about us than others. And everything in this story is saying, ooh, all of God's people are caring about themselves rather than somebody else. It's the exact opposite of the gospel. And then we think, well, maybe Judah will be different. Maybe Judah will act unselfishly. Maybe he will give his youngest son, Shelah, to Tamar just like he gave Onan. But Judah wants nothing of this either. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So instead of giving Shelah to Tamar, I know he's younger, but he could have just said, yes, Shelah is given to you, and as soon as he's of age, you know, we'll make this happen. He says, you need to go back to your father's house. He is such a hypocrite at this moment. Why does Judah act the way he does? He just wants Tamar out of the picture. He wants her gone. Why? Because he's afraid. He's seen Ur die because he's married to Tamar. He's seen Onan die because he's married to Tamar. And instead of thinking about their wickedness, he thinks Tamar's the problem. Man, if Sheila gets married to Tamar, maybe Sheila's going to die. What does that mean for Judah? Judah has gone from having an heir, Sheila, to no longer having an heir. So his name will be blotted out. Oh, he can stand up and tell Onan to fulfill his duty as long as it's not blotting out his own name. And reminded, I remind you, Judah doesn't even care about the eternal spiritual promises. He just cares about the temporal material promises. Judah acts just as selfishly as Ur and Onan. Verses 12 through 14, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, and he and his friend Hira the Adulamite, 
And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Tamar follows Judah's instructions. She goes back to her father's house. Eventually, it becomes clear to her that Judah is not going to give Sheila to her. Judah's wife dies. He's gone through his period of mourning. And then he decides to visit his Canaanite friend to live it up at one of the yearly feasts. I think, Judas, I, mean, I think Tamar has been thinking about this plan for quite some time. She immediately puts her plan into, into action. And it is a plan of incredible faith. Judah and his sons represent God's covenant people. They are to be a light to the dying world around them. They are to be bastions of unselfishness drawing the world in because God's people are not self-centered. They are selfless people. And all she's ever experienced at the hands of them is use and abuse. Tamar would have heard stories of how God had called Abraham out of the land of Ur and gave him great covenant promises. She would have heard how those promises were now given to Jacob. Her father-in-law, Judah, was also the rightful heir of these promises and his sons. But rather than being a reflection of God's goodness, Judah and his sons communicate the exact opposite. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were Tamar... Would you still want the promises that had been handed down to Jacob through Abraham? Think about my earlier statement that when people are deeply hurt by Christians in their selfishness, they don't just hate the Christian. They want nothing to do with the God of the Christians. Tamar has been deeply hurt by God's people. And instead of saying, I don't want anything to do with God, at least Abraham's God, who would want that? She clings to those promises. Tamar's like Ruth on steroids. Ruth says, I want your God to be my God. Says that to Naomi. But at least she had people that loved her good relationship with Naomi, she goes back to the land, Boaz is kind to her, all these kind of things. Tamar has none of that. And yet she says, I want to bear Judah's name. And she is willing to risk everything for that promise. Judah is casting aside his inheritance. Tamar is tenaciously seeking it. And this is her plan. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. 
for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that I may come in, that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Give me your whole wallet. He gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. Now you have to again see, we've seen this many times in Genesis, but here it is again. There are so many ways in which this plan could not work. But see, God is the one that's sovereignly working. God is the one sovereignly moving to reward Tamar's faith. Judah might have just passed her by, might not have been interested. Judah might have actually had some means of payment. Because it seems like if he had planned on actually having a prostitute, he would have brought means of payment. So it somehow seems like he is like brought into this in the moment. He didn't plan to do this. He might have been unwilling to leave his personal items. He might have said, nah, it's not worth it. I'm just going to go on. He might have recognized Tamar. Tamar might not have gotten pregnant. But Tamar knows that if she is discovered, she is a goner. She's willing to risk everything because she believes the covenant promises are worthwhile. A short while later, Judah tries to pay a fee and, and retrieve his items of identification. She doesn't care anything about that. 20 through 23. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat, and you did not find her. You see what's going on here? Judah is outwardly honorable. Among the Canaanites, it wouldn't even have been thought of any big deal. But he is such a scoundrel. He's selfish. He has cast aside Tamar. And to top it all off, he is self-righteously arrogant. Genesis 38, 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out. Let her be burned. But even his self-righteousness is motivated by jealousy or uh, selfishness. He doesn't care about morality. That's just a front. He knows that if Tamar is taken out of the way, that the little guilt that he feels for sending her away and not fulfilling his duty will be taken care of. She's let him off the hook. Only Tamar has planned this all out. She 
puts the stuff in her cloak, and she walks right over into his presence. As she was being brought out, verse 25, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. She throws down the gauntlet. Judah recognizes the staff and the signet and the cord. Doesn't take him long to realize that he has been had. And his statement is powerful. She is more righteous than I. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says it even more powerfully. She is righteous, not I. Judah simultaneously recognizes his own guilt and Tamar's righteousness. God uses Tamar to bring Judah to the point of recognizing his own sin. He has been walking away from the covenant promises. His brothers mean nothing to him. His selfishness is exposed. And this moment of the admission of his guilt is the turning point in Judah's life. We do see later on in the story, Judah will begin to act unselfishly. But I want you to understand this. Remember at the beginning of the story we said God could have just taken out Judah for his selfishness. Instead of taking Judah out, God brings Judah to repentance. This is mercy. Judah recognizes his own unrighteousness and in doing so, his need for a savior Why does Judah come to repentance? He could have fought this tooth or nail. Ah, I didn't give those to her. Somehow they stole them from me. Whatever. No, God brings him to repentance. His heart is saying, yes, I'm wicked. That is a gift of God. And Tamar is the means that God used. 27 to 30, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first, but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. The point of this is that you are reminded of Jacob and Esau. (laughs) Same kind of thing going on. God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. In this situation, Judah I have loved. In the midst of all this, don't miss how God honors Tamar. You see, she was to be married to Ur, she was married to Ur, and therefore she would be included in Ur's inheritance. Whose inheritance is she included in now? Judas. She goes up a rank. 
to one of the clan leaders. And it is through her that the Messiah will come. God's sovereign grace. Why do you think Tamar could tenaciously cling to the promises when everyone else would have, myself included probably, would have denied those promises because God was having mercy on Tamar. So how does this whole story lead us to Jesus Christ? In Jesus Christ, we finally have the brother that cares more about your welfare than his own. Jesus was willing to give up his inheritance to win yours. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't selfishly cling to what he already had, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross for you. Everywhere you look in this world, you find selfishness. Too often in the church. But our hope does not lie in the unselfishness of the church. Our hope rests in Christ alone. You want to know of someone who is utterly devoted to your eternal welfare? It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the hero. Too often, we believe that Jesus is just out to get something from us. In fact, I know that when I choose to sin, is because I don't think Jesus will actually take care of me. I think I got to do it for myself. Brothers and sisters, you have a brother in Jesus Christ. He's not ashamed of your sin any more than he was ashamed of Judah's sin. He died for you. He loves you. Yes, he asks you to to take his mindset upon yourself and try to live that way in this world, and we will do it imperfectly. That's what we strive to do. But first, before you can ever try to be loving to other people, you have to be secure that Jesus cares about you. As we sing our last song, sing it as a prayer of thanks that you have a brother in the Lord who has given everything for you. Amen.